The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. Leave me the fuck alone! We have to deal with things as they are, not as we want them to be. And it just drives me fucking crazy. You ready? Yes. Alright, here we go. Today is Monday, September 8, 2014, and this is episode 83. There's a round number for you. Of the Defensive Security Podcast, my name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. I gotta say, Jerry, I've been up for three days straight, waiting for the Apple announcement tomorrow. I can't sleep. You're actually in line right now, aren't you? I didn't want to share that, but um, yes, I am I am in line. Um, Sweet. I really, really, really cannot wait for the discounted 5S announcement. That's awesome. And and what they add to the new cheaper 5S. I was yeah, I was going to go for the new 5C, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, anyhow, yes. So uh yeah, my bad attempted humor. The uh the thoughts and opinions and bad jokes we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So um so Jumping into our stories this week, uh, as we talked about before last... we go, oh, oh we go, go ahead. Late breaking, Home Depot confirmed the breach. Yes, that's right, and uh, also it appears, although unconfirmed, to be the same malware that uh, that hit Target. Uh, I believe that is confirmed now. Oh, is it? Uh, okay. Well, okay. Let me be careful on that. Krebs They're had saying- a Krebs had a story on, on it, and I don't think. I think it's still speculation, but you might be right. I know I saw. Let's see, what did I link earlier? Um, I I'm trying to think of an, in their confirmation. I think that, yeah, I think the story then got into a little bit of speculation, but it seemed pretty knowledgeable speculation that this is a variant uh, with some propaganda written in Russian in the comments and in the information within the. The code. So I'm guessing that means it must have been doing, doing some decompiling or something or got yep. a hold and ripping it apart. Uh, but some of it is showing that it is Russian in nature and there's some propaganda in there about things like wars that the U.S. have started or been involved with or whatever. So um, interesting stuff. But so once again, the breach was initially detected by cards being so, uh, sold on the marketplace as the initial point of notification and discovery, which is scary, scary, scary. Especially because this is, in essence, a very, very similar piece of malware as Target, which happened how many months ago now? It's, I mean, it's pushing a year ago. I, I'm, not, I'm not in Home Depot. I don't know what they got going on, but from the outside looking in, if you such a major breach like Target and all the avenues for for discovery of that were missed, wouldn't you have at least shored up against that particular type of attack by now if you're another major retailer? Well, or, or have looked. So, you know, I think one of the, and we totally didn't plan on talking about this, but I think it's good yeah. we are. Um, the the uh, I think the announcement said that it, the timeline of the attack apparently started back in April. Yeah. And I, I guess it went through sometime in mid-August, if I 
if I recall the timeline right, which is a fair amount of time. And what what troubles me a little bit is in that time frame, you know, U.S. CERT and DHS and a number of other entities have released repeated warnings. And in fact, uh, we know that the UPS store, or at least we believe the UPS store as a result of that, went and did some investigation and found that they were uh, they were partially compromised or partially infected. Um, I have to wonder if you're, uh, you know, if you're a Home Depot, and like you said, Target is is compromised, and you're 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 sitting around watching all these uh, large chain stores being you know f- falling. Wouldn't you be potentially uh, a little more a uh, little more proactive in in, in watching? I, I I think I would. At least I'd like to think I would. Yeah, absolutely. So, according to what Target, sorry, not Target, Home Depot has said, uh, this looks to be of, have affected stores in U.S. and Canada. Stores in Mexico and transactions that occurred on HomeDepot.com were not involved. And as far as I know, pins were not compromised, just credit and debit card numbers. Right. Which is very much like Target. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, and it looks like it was probably uh, point-of-sale devices themselves that were compromised. Again, like Target. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, it, that would make sense if it's the same if it's the same malware. We know the malware was on the, yeah, the we're, POS we're terminals themselves. Same family, very similar. Maybe not exactly the same. Uh, slightly re-rolled, uh, but in essence the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting. I think I think Home Depot is probably going to benefit from Target in that they're probably going to react better uh, than Target did, most likely. But we'll see. It'll be interesting to watch. So yeah, I, uh, I think the only I, I, to be to be candid, and I you know I I, I don't I don't mean to so be blaming the victim. By that caveat, are we to infer that most of the time you're not candid? Uh, yes, I usually I'm reserved and very thoughtful. All right. But but right now I'm going to be candid and say <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to be candid and say what this this came out a, a number of days ago and today's Monday and they're only now um, disclosing this so and I know in in the past I've I've been kind of critical about the concept of of being overly. Uh, you know, having too high of expectations in in the short term, right? But it is a little, uh, I think it is a little troubling given the experience that Target had that Home Depot did wait so long. I mean, I think they could have, I guess it was good that they came out and they didn't deny it. They came out and said that we're investigating, uh, you know, but I'm sure they had some inkling a little before now. That's that's I think if there is criticism to be leveled, that's probably it. But well, you know, let me play devil's advocate. This stir breaks on Krebs, mm-hmm. based on cards showing up on the marketplaces. People go to Home Depot. Home Depot goes, news to us. Let's look into it. Yeah, yeah. They got to get their ducks in a row. Start a whole forensic analysis. You know, malware discovery process. Yep confirm it, get all the information together, and then they have got, legal, marketing, yeah. everybody else sign off on it, 
board be advised, everybody else on the planet who has a need to know and the stakeholder be in the loop and get their two cents in before they go public. Yeah, yeah. they got to hire the crisis manager. They got to get the outside counsel. They've got to, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to do. I know, you're right. So in my mind, they probably, you know, how, it all depends on how well instrumented they are and how sharp their folks are. Plus, you know, they brought in outside folks who've got to come to speed. They, it's published that they brought in Fishnet and Semantic, mm-hmm. probably some others. I've heard some others have been involved, but no, that's publicly disclosed, and I don't want to violate any non-competes, but, or, sorry, non-disclosures. But all that being said, I bet they probably weren't 100% sure until Friday. Yeah, I, I'll buy that. I mean, I think it was, what, Wednesday? Wednesday or Thursday? Tuesday. I oh, think. was it Tuesday? Tuesday? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Last week was a blur. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't want to rush this. Yeah, you're right. And we've talked about that before. I agree with you. Uh, so, yeah. So, I'm looking at the fact that they published on their website. When did the investigation begin? Morning of September 2nd. Our banking partners and law enforcement notified us that there was some unusual activity connected to our payment systems. Our IT security team immediately began working with leading IT security firms, our banking partners, and the Secret Service to, to investigate. We're now confident that a breach of payment card systems has occurred. So, uh, you, you know, that being said, I bet this transaction's up to probably Friday. Could have still been being stolen. Uh, yep. Sure. Uh, and I've been at Home Depot recently. Uh, I will tell you in the last week, I've made sure to use an Amex card instead of a debit card. But uh, um, I just kept using watching. the same card <laughs> if it's going yeah. down. <laughs> and I've been watching my account activity like a hawk. But uh, and, and as we talked about in other shows, you know, this is something actually that I've got kind of a contingency plan for, but I'd prefer not to invoke it because um, it involves. Dusty off and nuking from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. And then I try not to do that. So, all that being said, I know I completely threw this as a curveball at the beginning of the show, but this is hard hitting, breaking news. Indeed. And, uh, I'm sure Lowe's is probably going, yay! <laughs> Make sure we're on an X. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I, I, I just have to say, though, if, if I were. Even a reasonably sized retail company in the U.S., I'd be hiring somebody to go do some forensics on a sampling of my pause terminals. Seriously, or at least instrument at your all your egress points. Yeah, uh, I, this is uh, this is bad. You know, I was also thinking that that we need uh, we need to come up with the Krebs as a service model. I think because clearly that is how these things are coming out. Well, that in essence is the quote unquote threat intelligence offerings of a lot of companies, right? <laughs> hey, Brian, did you hear anything yet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brian, here are my customers. What are you hearing? <laughs> uh, if, if, you know, when, when it's a cold day in hell and Brian actually listens to this webcast, he may chuckle. But until then, we'll just. Have to. Yep. 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 Hope All he right. doesn't hear it third hand in a bad way. I know. Well, we do really love you, Brian. Not in a creepy. Not, stalk in, a, not in a creepy stocky stock away. That's right. Not anymore. Not since the judge told us to stop. Okay, moving on. Moving so, on. Yes. The original show notes. So we uh, we teased last show, which was just what four show short days ago. It was. Um, 
that uh, we were going to be talking about what's new in PCI 3.0, which is way better than PCI 2.0. Well, with all the retail point-of-sale credit card breaches, I can't see why this is in any way relevant. The good news is, I got to tell you, so if you think about it in this way, right, the current update to PCI takes effect in uh, on January 1st, 2015. Not it, true. Some of it is in July, right? Not true. All right. Well, correct. It me. is in effect now. It went into effect at the beginning of the year. However, you must be compliant. Oh, fine. Details, details. By 2015. January. There you go. Some of and, some of the requirements I think are out to July of yes. next year. But um I guess my point was that now that they've gone to the three year update model, we we can assume that it will be uh twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen before the things that the new controls and the new additions to PCI four point that addresses the current threats you know we we will expect remediation or mitigating steps uh about three years hence which boggles my mind again it isn't that it can't be that big of a problem i know it's i know it's heresy to think about especially as an it person who or a security person who who thinks that any kind of this stuff is bad and terrible but I don't think that this is viewed as uh, you know as as a uh, existential problem for these these card brands as as we think they are. So in essence, you're saying this is acceptable shrink. I think so, and you know, I I, I was listening to um, to somebody talk about this. I can't remember who. Uh, maybe it was the risk science guys. I, I I don't really remember to be honest. But the the point was. It's even it's even more removed from the banks and the card brands than you think because when these when, when these cards are stolen and fraud is committed, the charges end up getting reversed back to the retailer where the fraud occurred. So the bank isn't taking the loss, and the card brand isn't taking the loss, and the processor isn't taking the loss. That it's the it's the retailers that are taking the loss. The only exception is when they have to reissue new cards. The banks are the ones who have to uh, to eat that money. And so, like with Target, Target right now is being sued by a number of banks to recoup the money that they had to spend to reissue cards. And Target saying, "Up yours. We don't have an agreement with you, Mister Banks. We've got an agreement with our card processor. So go pound sand." So, there you go. Indeed. So, all that being said, a little background, PCI DSS, for those who maybe are just somewhat new to this whole thing, is the digital standards something something that, that controls what you're supposed to do from a technological control standard to secure your payment card environment. And they used to update it every two years. Now they're updating it every three years. This is the new standard that came out. Uh, that's going to basically everybody's going to be forced to be compliant with for the most part, except for a couple of them by the beginning of this coming year, 2015. 
So everybody who's in the world of PCI probably knows all this stuff, but for those who are just kind of concerned peripherally or interested peripherally, uh, let's take a look. And, and I think it's interesting in the context of what's going on, what's actually been added or updated or changed. And, and Jerry will give us the rundown on that. But uh, spoiler alert, not a ton, interestingly. Yeah, although there is roughly 100 changes, so we're going to be here for a while. Get comfortable. Yeah, we're thinking uh, 3.7 hours, I think we had spec for this particular podcast. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Get comfortable. So, uh, uh, no, no, no CPE credits offered. Just so you know. <laughs> uh, other ones, yes, not this one. <laughs> this particular episode is, is exempt. All right, so, um, uh, the, the first, and by the way, I think there's only about 10 or so that we're going to talk about here, the, the top the top ones. And uh, the Naked Security, Sophos' blog had, had uh, earlier in the year published a, a really nice overview of the, of the major changes. Uh, obviously, there's 100 changes, so uh, the, I would say when you look through the changes, there's a lot of uh, what they call clarifications. So they're relatively minor changes and in, in kind of unsurprising. Um, there's a couple of additional guidance. And then the evolving requirements are, I think, where the most interesting changes are, are, are landing. So the first change we have is to clarify what network diagrams must include and added a new requirement that the uh, network diagrams show all the cardholder data flows. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that they didn't actually already have that, but they, they point out, the, the author of this points out that it's really difficult to make a, a logical or, or a thorough assessment if you don't have this kind of a map. And I think that's hopefully pretty intuitive to everybody. Yeah, your reaction that I'm surprised they didn't have this before now was my reaction to a lot of these changes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well. Uh, the other thing I will say about this is this is an excellent piece of advice in general for all sorts of business processes and data flow. But don't make any assumptions. You really should go in as if you were a small child and take it from the top because you may discover all sorts of things that are not what you expect them to be. So, so I, put I think, it in your mouth? <laughs> I think what you should do is ignore that. And the judge told you to stop that, Jerry. To stop. Sorry. And trace the stuff fresh, right? And really validate this information. Because you never know when somebody has done something. And if you're going with assumptions the way it should work, you may be wrong. And I and the reason I'm expounding on this is because I think this applies in general to IT and security issues where if you don't really validate Without assumptions, it's really tough to know for sure. And we just saw this over and over again. We just saw home uh, healthcare.gov have a breach because a test box was never supposed to be connected to the internet, and it was. Right? That's just one yeah. of many I mean, that's examples. How, that's how Bit9 got on, too. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so, anyway, point being, validate this. Very, very strenuously when you're when you're mapping stuff. Don't just go with, well, I think it goes like this. And developer one time told me this connects to that. Make sure you know. Absolutely. Sorry, I'll try not to 
rant as much on the next one. No, no, I, I think you're, you're right, but I would actually say that I, I think PCI DSS, which by the way stands for data security standard, right? Do you, so, do you want a cookie? No, no, that's fine. Um, I'm just, just, you know, I'm helping out. Yeah, I forgot. I'm sorry. I'm helping out. I got a lot of TLAs rolling around in my head. It's, 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 I, I work at a TLA, so. Anyhow, um, I, I think that most every one of the requirements in here are, are probably on their own just good advice uh, in any in just about any environment. So I don't think you're going to – you could really take anyone and say, oh, that, that's really just a, a cardholder of things. But, but anyhow, um, getting into the, the next one, the, the next change, they clarified the requirement for changing vendor default passwords. I'm sorry, I'm having a tr- trouble not giggling with this one. Uh, <laughs> clarified that the requirement for changing vendor default passwords applies to all default passwords, including systems – applications, security software, terminals, etc., and that unnecessary default accounts are removed or disabled. It, it's, um, well, we'll just move on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one. Uh, they split a requirement, uh, which is 3.5.2, into two separate requirements, uh, which is uh, dealing with the storing of cryptographic keys so they, they, uh, the three, the existing 3.5.2 basically says, uh, that you have to store keys in as few possible, few locations as possible. And, uh, and, uh, and actually I say, I, I, let me back up for a second because I said that wrong. Uh, 3.5.2 is storing the keys in a secure manner and 3.5.3 is to secure it. Uh, store them in as few locations as possible. There we go. Now I got it right. Which again, there was one, uh, there was, I think it was a, a really old, like 15 year old Microsoft, like the, the 10 immutable laws of information security. And one of them was that, that uh, cryptography was only as good as how you store your keys. And, you know, there you go. So, um, Next, uh, next requirement is, or next requirement change is new requirement to evaluate evolving malware threats for any systems not considered to be commonly affected by malicious software. Which is, I think, an interesting change, right? Yeah, it's a little subtle, right? You have to think about that one for a second. Yeah, so we commonly don't think that, uh, let's say Linux systems, Need malware, and the point here is that you need to be constantly evaluating whether your previous understanding of uh, that you don't need anti-malware on Linux or on some embedded uh, pause terminal is still an accurate position based on current current trends. So I think that's good. And that's goodness. Um, in 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 kind, they also say that there's a new requirement to ensure that antivirus solutions are actively running and cannot be disabled or altered by users unless specifically authorized by management on a per-case basis. You know, again, relatively sensible thing, but again, you know, it's anti antivirus isn't the isn't a panacea, but uh, it can save you sometimes. Yeah, but that first one I think is interesting. The 5.1.2, it's basically saying 
all machines could have malware. Think start thinking that way, which which I concur with. Absolutely. So that's probably going to drive some network based malware detection, most likely. Mm-hmm. I would agree. All right. The next uh, next change is address common coding vulnerabilities in software development process as follows. Train developers in secure coding techniques, including how to avoid common, common coding vulnerabilities and understanding how sensitive data is handled in memory and develop applications based on secure coding guidelines. Uh, and and they, the, uh, I'd say the article notes that you want to make sure your coders are keeping their knowledge up to date and using industry best practices. And they give a link to some resources. Um, you know, what's, what's interesting here is a lot of retailers, I guess probably Target is maybe may an exception, right? But I would say a lot of, especially the smaller retailers, aren't doing this on their own. So, so it says that retailers kind of have to make sure that the providers of their systems are abiding by these requirements. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's currently not in PCI, but I would go one step further with this and say have a third party do some static source code analysis to make sure, and perhaps some dynamic code analysis to make sure that you're actually hitting your goals. You could train folks all day long, but unless you're measuring the effectiveness of that training, I'm not sure how valuable that would be if you're doing your own in-house development. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and again, I think that the the ability to do that is going to be based on how large you are. I mean, if you're a target, that's probably a reasonable thing. But if you're, you know, if you are, you're a, 10 grocery store chain. It's probably not very, very realistic. I would agree though. I think, yeah, target wrote their own, didn't they? Yeah. It was custom developed. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, all right. So moving on next is, a. I guess there's a couple lumped into one combine minimum password complexity and strength requirements into a single requirement and increased flexibility for alternatives to meet the equivalent complexity and strength. So, you know, basically saying, well, let's not, you know, let's not just make it eight or 10 or whatever with uh, one special character and one uppercase. And, you know, let's, you can be that or 16 characters, you know, of all, of all letters that, so there's a, there's kind of a trade-off. The next is the clarified requirement for two-factor authentication applies to users, administrators, and all third parties, including vendor access for support or maintenance. Uh, probably including things like VNC connections to your pause terminals by, by your, uh, your maintenance company, which seems like a, a pretty common problem these days. Though what's crazy about that is... The requirement for service providers remote access to customer prem to use the unique auth doesn't go into effect until July first, twenty fifteen. So apparently that's really difficult. Yeah, well so so let me read that one. New new requirement for service providers with remote access to customer premises you to use unique authentication credentials for each customer. So yeah, that uh, I'm not even sure actually how they're accomplishing that, to be honest. That, 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 that's interesting. So I can see why they, uh, they gave some extra time there. Just to develop a unique user for each service provider. That, that's, 
you're having trouble envisioning how they're doing that. That's tough. Huh? Oh, so I, I was thinking uh, physical access to customer premise. I, 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 I missed the word remote there. <laughs> no oh, worries. Well. Just, just. Oh well. Moving on. The sanity check. I thought you were being sarcastic for a moment there. No, no, no. All right, moving on. That makes sense to me. All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah, I should do this early in the morning before I before it's I have my bad day. <laughs> it's true. Why do we do this on Mondays? We, you know, roughest day of the week. We got a case of the Mondays. That's right. Brain's already broken anyway. That's, that's right. You get nothing but the best for what you pay for this podcast. That's right. By the way, we're we're having to raise the price fifteen percent next month. I was worried. Yep. I'll have to do some layoffs, I think. All right. So uh, the next requirement in this section, new requirement where other authentication mechanisms are used, for example, physical or logical security tokens, smart card certificates, etc., that that the mechanisms must be linked to an individual account and ensure only the intended user can gain access with that mechanism. And this is, this is essentially... Uh, uh, something that a lot of more mature organizations wrestle with, uh, not so much some of the smaller ones, which is uh, individual accountability. And the, the whole idea there is you want to be able to track back who did what, when, and you know who was responsible for, uh, you know, for for sharing their password or uh, doing whatever bad stuff uh, actually happened. So that is, uh, I, I think that's a really important thing, and ha- having done my fair share of investigations, I can tell you it is extremely important to have good individual accountability. All right, number nine, uh, requirement number nine changes. New requirement to control physical access to sensitive areas for on-site personnel, including a process to authorize access and revoke access immediately upon termination. So, uh, that's a, you know, again, that's a pretty basic one that hopefully most organizations have in place. Uh, the next second one in that group, new requirement to pro- protect devices that capture payment card data via direct physical interaction with the card from tampering and substitution. And that goes into effect July 1st. So this one I think is pretty interesting, right? So that's your swipe readers, your whatever. So think about the environment at a retail establishment, especially when you can swipe your own cards. I wonder how they're going to start securing those or what a QSA is going to say is secure. If it's sitting there and it's on the, the, you know, basically on the counter at the checkout and there's a clerk standing right there, does that mean it's secured? Do we start having to add some plastic and lockdowns around these things to make sure that people can't swap them out? What is secure? Yeah, I I think this is the you know this is the anti anti skimmer anti you know I, I I guess like you said you could swap them out with a well one another one I've seen is there are some devices out there. Let's say you've got a device attached to the terminal via USB or whatever it may be, the swipe. And you've seen those little guys that can plug in and be along the path. Sure. Plug into the back of the terminal and grab that information. So do we need to start physically securing all of that wiring and all of that? It makes sense to me. That's the intent 
of this requirement is to deny access to anything that you could add to or swap out to surreptitiously grab a copy of whatever information is going or perhaps alter and change that information in some way. So that's an interesting requirement. I, I wonder I wonder how that will roll out. And again, that one doesn't roll into effect, well, I should say, into being finable until July 1st, 2015. Yeah, I... Uh... That is going to be an interesting one because I think you're on the you're on an interesting point that um, I guess depending on how much of a or how how closely your QSA is paying attention, you know, this could be a real a real bear to actually meet the requirements of because uh, you know what's what's enough right you know is it does it have to be locked in a box <laughs> you know what 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 is going to meet that seemingly pretty subjective standard. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see what, what comes of that one. Um, I, and I do think that the, uh, there was a, a, an interesting story by Krebs recently about the, the really thin micro skimmers, which, uh, which are becoming a really big problem. I guess those, those were mostly in Europe, which by the way is really interesting because Europe uses what they use, chip and pins but yet you have an attack using a skimmer well how did why does that work because their cards are backwards compatible and when you when you put them in it reads the mag stripe bing bang boom there you go all right so uh next requirement is a new requirement if segmentation is used to isolate the cde or card data uh, card holder data environment from other networks to perform penetration tests that verify the segmentation methods are operational and effective. I think this is fantastic. I would agree. And there's a quote in here I want to call out too, that the author, uh, who I want to get his name right because he deserves it, uh, John Shear, John Shear, uh, puts in here that I think is absolutely brilliant. He basically says, just because a control is supposed to behave a certain way doesn't mean it always will when stressed. And I completely love that quote, and I think absolutely that should be the thought process we should have as InfoSec folks is. Just because you designed it a certain way doesn't mean that it's going to actually work that way, and you won't know until you actually test it in a real-world environment. That's right. We should be doing that. And I think that's great. So, Like the quote from the guy in uh, Apollo 13, you know, I don't care what it was designed to do, I care what it can do. That's right. Yep. Just like. Just like. Just like. Just like. We are Ed Harris. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, next requirement. New requirement for service providers to provide the written agreement or acknowledgement to their customers as specified at requirement 12.8. This is a, this is a, a kind of obscure one. And basically they're saying that you are having to provide to your customers that you, um, you're not, basically as they put it, put it, there's no get out of jail free, right? So whether your company uh, or service provider that is handling sensitive data, uh, there's always going to be accountability on on your end. So, you know, you you can't you can't um, delegate that accountability to some other party. I think is where where they're going with this one. So, anyway, it's a 
it's an interesting change on that one. Uh, so that those were the highlights that uh, that this author John Scherer called out. Anything else you wanted to say about this? No, I think there's a lot more. Uh, you know, one thing that I find interesting is there's nothing really revolutionary here. It's a lot of stuff we should be doing. And as usual, if you're only managing just to the PCI standard, you are not close to secure. And of course, secure is a strong term, right? That is different for every organization. But let me put it this way. I don't think you've mitigated the risk sufficiently if you're just meeting the PCI standards. And you can go far beyond it to help your organization. Um, so ultimately... Don't just stop at the PCI standards is, is really what it comes down to. And there's nothing here that addresses a lot of stuff we know about today, like RAM um, uh, memory scraping. It's not touched at all in here and other new uh, attacks that we see happening right now. No, that's, so That's a good point. Uh, it's but Ultimately, we, there's a lot out there but that we isn't did, addressed by this. We did talk Sorry. last week about um, you know the, the, the PCI Council released a – I don't know if you want to call it a report or a statement or, or something that addresses the current spate of, of issues. And, uh, and they, they did point out that there should be a focus on security, not just on compliance. Right. And, and I think one of the, one of the fallacies, and I've seen this, uh, in a number of people that I've talked to is that there seems to be this false belief that uh, if you are PCI compliant, there's some kind of safe harbor. And, and by safe harbor, I mean that if you, you know, you, if you've passed your, uh, PCI certification, uh, you know, your, your QSA comes in and signs off and then you're compromised, that somehow, uh, you know, indemnifies you or, or, or what have you. But there is no safe harbor. And what we see time and time again is, and in fact, in that very same statement, uh, the PCI Council CTO actually, you know, frankly said that these companies that are getting compromised are not living up to the requirements of the standard. And, and implied in that is that they didn't do a thorough job. Just because it's some like RAM scraping malware wasn't addressed in there, that's a threat. You still have to go deal with it, even though it's not part of the PCI requirement. So they they don't the PCI council that is doesn't cut you any slack. I mean they'll you know it's uh and by the yeah. way that, that's a very controversial thing. I'm not saying this to defend them, right? Yeah, it's kind of like they want their cake and they want it too, right? It's absolutely, absolutely. It's I mean it's it's the old joke that you know no. No company that has, you know, this PCI compliant has ever been compromised because, you know, they essentially retroactively revoke your compliance. Yeah, I, for for sake of time, I'll not go down that road. <laughs> I, I don't think that's entirely fair to their to their folks. But the flip side is we do have to make sure that we are mitigating these risks, regardless of what PCI says to do. Mm -hmm. PCI is the bare minimum, I think is, is what, what I'm trying to say here. There you go. Okay. So moving on, uh, this next story comes from tech world and the title is phishing emails fool most employees, but is this their problem or emails problem? So 
McAfee actually ran a study in the UK with about 1,755 UK-based workers and found that 80% had failed to spot at least one out of seven phishing emails that they were presented with in the course of the study. And they found that people in uh, HR and finance job roles were the worst offenders of the bunch. Uh, and so probably not a big surprise to anyone there. Uh, they, they also go on to point out that the issue isn't whether people recognize that an email is a, is a phishing email. It's whether or not they click on the links or open the attachment because what they've, <clears throat> what they're asserting here is that those are two different things, right? There, you can recognize, you can have somebody recognize that an email is a phishing email and still opt to open the attachment or click on the link. And, uh, and so that's its own problem. Uh, another company, security company, Imperva, kind of takes issue with this, uh, the, the concept of this survey study that McAfee performed and said, you know, hey, what do you, you know, what do you expect? We got to stop blaming people for falling for these, you know, well-crafted phishing emails. So, I don't think it's a big surprise to anybody that people fall for phishing emails, but I think that dovetails into the next story, which is from the NCC group. It's a, it's a blog post. They're of, they're a vendor who does pen testing. So, you know, caveat emptor, you know, all that, all that good stuff. Warning, warning. But this is a story that they, they wrote up about a, uh, allegedly a, APT simulation campaign they ran on a customer of theirs. And I thought it was a really interesting kind of transparent view into how this can go wrong. So given that it's, it's really common for people to fall for ish, for phishing emails. The point of the story is that it, it, it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take many people to fall for a phishing scam for your organization to be uh, significantly negatively impacted. So, uh, so again, NCC ran this uh, this APT simulation campaign for some unnamed customer. This customer used macOS as their workstations, and they uh, they hosted most of their infrastructure in the cloud. You know, good. I guess that's the the way the world is moving these days. So the uh, the this NCC group wrote some custom malware specifically for Mac, for Mac OS. They sent it to the IT department. So the members of the IT department at this customer and, uh, you know, the, this malware did uh, what I would call the normal remote access Trojan kinds of things. It connected back to a CNC and provided, you know, the ability to do, uh, different things on the workstation. In fact, the workstation like look for files and take remote command and all, all that sort of stuff. So the, uh, the IT department was pretty effective at detecting that this email phishing campaign was coming in. And eventually they, uh, they, they blocked the emails from coming in. They, they recognized the command and control domain and they blocked outbound access to that domain. But the, the company goes to, goes on to point out that 
by the time they had done that, by the time they had recognized that this phishing campaign was going on and that they needed to block access to this uh, command and control domain, this uh, NCC group had already gotten a foothold onto one of their IT workers' workstations and had downloaded a file that, you know, again, if you believe the this has happened as it is written, downloaded a file that contained uh, all, or not all, but some number of uh, credentials for their cloud infrastructure. So apparently usernames, passwords, and private keys. So uh, after, you know, I guess shortly after that, sounds like they got locked out of the workstation environment. But from there, they were able to log into the admin panels on their cloud hosting companies. Uh, they weren't able to log directly into the images, the server images lo uh, lo uh, running on their cloud environment. But uh, I guess, this seems a little odd to me, but you know, I'll, I'll go with it. They have an Active Directory environment hosted up in the cloud. And so they they uh, captured an image of one of these Active Directory servers and, uh, and copied it down to their uh, local local systems and uh, pulled out the uh, some of the, the cached credentials and uh, and also some of the hashes. And so they uh, uh, they essentially ran past the hash attacks and allegedly did some brute forcing and found that there were a number of cases of, of password reuse. And, and essentially they ended up uh, compromising quite a lot of their environment, including uh, things like uh, SharePoint, their HR applications, their webmail, their secure file exchange, and interestingly enough, a password vault. So uh, what what they kind of sum up with their uh, their recommendations based on their experience is that uh, they they find they found that there was a, a lack of user awareness, and I suspect. That's probably something that this company can help you with, right? Uh, they f they found that there was a lack of egress protection. So once when the initial attack happened, the uh, you know the, the the malware was able to to connect outbound to the command and control server, which uh, which kind of enabled the attack in the first place. Uh, they found that there were obviously poor password handling and storage hygiene. So you should not be storing passwords and usernames and, and uh, private keys in unencrypted text files sitting on your on your laptop. That's a, just a bad idea. Uh, there was lots of password reuse, apparently. Uh, they also recommend using two-factor authentication on your cloud admin portals, which would, uh, which would help with that. And also implementing uh, permission segregation so that uh, compromising one account doesn't necessarily get you completely owned. So, anything, uh, anything you want to add to that story? Yeah, they're leaving out a couple things here. They don't talk at all about having anything to to detect from a technology control uh, inbound phishing emails. Anything that's looking at uh, attachments, uh, whether it be sandboxing and execution, whether it be although Mac OS is one. I don't think sandbox technology is covering yet today. Uh, interestingly enough, um, they kind of briefly mentioned egress controls. I think that that probably bears a little more discussion in terms of blocking outbound uh, traffic that is necessary. It's a good good way to shut down CNC that you don't know about. 
uh, that sort of thing. So I, I think there's more that could have been done here from a technology control perspective. I do think ultimately, um, user awareness training on vishing is helpful. It probably cuts down on some of the noise, but it is not nearly reliable enough to stop phishing success. So I think we absolutely have to back it up with user controls and uh, technology controls, assuming that phishing emails are going to get in and people are going to click on things they shouldn't and open things they shouldn't. So, Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'll tell you um, a couple of things just to add to that. First off is I see a lot of a lot of organizations fall. Maybe it's maybe it's codified at the organizational level. Maybe it's you know a problem with uh, with the IT person themselves. You know they, they they fall into this trap that hey you know my hard drive's encrypted, therefore all the stuff I have on it is encrypted, which is great if you lose your laptop at the airport and it shut off and all that right. But if you're you know if you've got a, a an Excel file that has all your passwords in it and you get a rat, you know, it's gone, right? You, that hard drive encryption didn't do a damn thing for you in that case. So you gotta, you gotta make sure you understand what you're, you know, what you're protecting against. <laughs> um, I, I think that's a great point. And this is something that I, I try to get people to think about all the time. Great. You're encrypted, but what avenue unlocks that encryption? Exactly. And if the bad guy is emulating that that avenue, it doesn't matter that it's encrypted. Mm-hmm. So if you have an encrypted file share, but the file share is automatically decrypted for your convenience when you attach to it from your from your desktop or laptop, that encrypted file share means nothing if that bad guy is coming from your laptop. Exactly. Right, or if you're already logged in and it automatically decrypts the hard drive as you use things, uh, again that encryption means nothing. So where and how is that encryption enforced and where and how is that encryption, uh, you know, decrypted is what really matters when you're talking about how that encryption helps you. Mm-hmm. So especially data at rest encryption is not nearly as helpful as you may think it is if things are automatically decrypting. Data at rest encryption typically just prevents theft and out of band access. Yeah. If it's in band access, it doesn't do anything. It's physical theft, right? Yeah. Yep. So, um, I don't know. It's just it's it's a pet peeve of mine that a lot of people seem to misunderstand how encryption actually helps them and protects them. Yep. The other the other thing I was going to point out, and you mentioned a, a little bit, is the effectiveness of training. And you know the, the, the problem is in in an average organization, you know, you're going to find, you know, somewhere between twenty and fifty percent of people will fall for your phishing campaign and. And that is very, very variable based on, you know, who the people are and how sophisticated the fishing, you know, the, the fish is and, and on and on and on, right? And so you can do training and you, maybe you can get that 20% down to 15% or 10%. But depending on what you care about, that may still be a big, big problem. So if, if you, if, if the thing you are worried about, is help desk tickets to rebuild systems that you know that have to be uh, you know, reimaged after someone clicks on a link and gets you know gets compromised with Zeus or, or or whatever. Then yeah, it makes a lot of sense because you can you know you could potentially save you know hundreds of man hours every year in in, uh, in help desk costs and, and idle worker hours. 
But if this is the kind of this this story right here is the kind of thing that you are worried about, and most organizations probably do worry about it to some extent, it doesn't take many, right? Ten percent is still letting things through the door, and so you've got to figure out what are you going to do. There, there's it's not it's not going to be a person that pre- prevents you know you're, you're not going to get people to identify and not click on 100% of phishing emails. It is not possible. And we have to deal with things as they are, not as we want them to be. And this is how they are. So we got to deal with it. So anyhow, um, the last story we have is <clears throat> is really just a blog post, but it, it got under my skin and I'm going to talk about it because, well, damn it, this is my podcast and... That's what I do. <clears throat> Hackerhurricane.blogspot.com is the is the uh, the post, and the title of the article is "Infosec Industry Partly Responsible for Huge Breaches." Infosec cons are another part. You and management are the last part. For the you, record, this is, you, this, you are the last this, part. This is what we call clickbait, and it worked. Carry on. <laughs> it did work. It did work. There will be there will be tens of people visiting this blog now because of because of this coverage. So anyhow, uh, the the point is that, and this is very, by the way, very similar to Wendy Nather's uh, blog post from a week or two ago about the you know how how do you help? You help by getting in there and fixing things, and that's essentially what this person is saying. How do you help? You get you help by looking for what's wrong. You know, don't go to cons and go to the you know the the latest uh, penetration testing technique thing or the the latest malware evasion class or or what have you. You know, you really want to figure out how to defend. You want to get you want to get into into the hardcore defense about you know let's look for you know, certain places on hard drives where malware, we, where no malware is writing. And let's, you know, let's, let's focus our effort on, on bolstering our protection. And by the way, infosec cons don't cover this crap. And so you people, us, ought to be clamoring for these cons to have more of this kind of content. So, so that's, that's you know long and short that's essentially what what this post is about and i've had a number of discussions with people who have emailed um about this kind of this kind of thing and uh you know my my take is uh, look i'm a defender right that's what i do i have a podcast about defense i write about defense i think about defense constantly however so you're saying you're kind of defensive. I'm kind of defensive in the security kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it is extraordinarily valuable to go to some of these offensive classes because, and not because I'm, I have, uh, I have sites to become a pen tester, right? No, it's because it's really freaking important for me to understand what is happening in the world of offense. I want, I need to know from a conceptual level, 
how systems are getting compromised. What can I trust? What can I not trust? What do I know that I, I should never trust? I mean, I'm not going to trust pretty much anything, but what, a, you know, there's degrees of, of, of distrust. And, uh, and, and so these, you know, these conferences in my experience help me kind of peg my, peg my needle on different kinds of technology. And so I, I find them extraordinarily valuable, uh, from an, from an offensive, well, from a defensive perspective to understand what's going on in the offensive world. So that's my, that's my take. Um, obviously I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm alone sometimes in that, but you know, Hey, teach his own. I agree with you. You have to understand the weapons being used against you to know how to defend against them. It doesn't mean you have to be good at it. It doesn't mean that you have to be able to execute those attacks. Uh, there were some people who had this sort of uh, egotistical elitist attitude that unless you were an elite hacksaw who could hand code zero days, you've got no business doing any infosec work defensively in an environment. And I think that's wrong. I think that's incorrect. And not just because I am a, a failure when it comes to being an elite hacksaw and I can't write zero days. I, I don't think that that's necessarily what is necessary to be effective as a defender. And, and to this particular blog post, uh, you know, he has a couple of interesting things he mentions about why aren't you monitoring this directory and that directory? And you, there are uh, techniques you should be doing. And you should absolutely don't disagree with that at all. And and I yeah I, I agree with that. And um, the only thing I would say is that as soon as you get his top five knocked out, uh, the bad guys will switch to something else. So keep in mind this is constantly evolving. Um, I think it's more a matter of, and we have talked about this in the past. I think we we had a Twitter debate about this. <laughs> Various offensive and, and attack-based prezos are sexier. They're a lot more engaging. They're easier to show at a con. Oh, I don't agree with this con to boycott those sorts of talks because I think you're shorting yourself the opportunity to learn absolutely. about both sides of the, the coin. Yep. Should there be more talks on defense? Yes. Here's the thing. Defense is really tough to sum up in a talk because everybody's environment is different. Exactly. Right? So I could come up with a brilliant talk about egress firewall filtering and have it only apply to 10% of the audience. So we can come up with generalizations. Um, but, you know, I think the relative success I think we're up to 22 listeners now of this podcast shows that you were right in creating this, this sort of avenue because there are folks out there who are hungry for defensive information. Absolutely. But admittedly, it can be dull. We try to keep it entertaining and light and spicy, but um, it can be dull. It's not as sexy as look how I just pwned root on this box. Yeah. Yeah. That right. is stuff that we grew up with going, wow, that's cool. Right. Uh, you don't see a lot of movies showing the hero adding a firewall rule. It's just not the way it is. Nope. Um, but it's really important. So I don't necessarily disagree that we need more defensive focus at cons. But I have trouble buying the rest of his argument that we're the problem because we're not demanding it. I don't know. I, I... Well, I mean, having, having been to cons and, and, you know, first off, I will tell you 
the big name, sexy, offensive talks draw the crowds big time. And, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember who, whose crowd it was or whose conference or class it was last time at DerbyCon, but I mean, it was, you know, people, people lined up two hours before the start of that talk. And, you know, it, probably only a quarter of the people got into the, to the room that were in line. And, you know, and, and it's, that's, that's just the way it is. But I, I would also say that, you know, how do you know to block? How do you know you should watch those directories? And, and I would say that the reason you know to watch those directories is because, you know, somebody's either seen it or somebody in an offensive capability has tried to exploit it and probably presented that technique at a, at, you know, at an offensive talk. So I just think it's a, you know, I think there's a lot of cross pollinization that happens there. And, I, you know, I'm not going to be apologetic. I really think that defenders, and I've actually started writing a bit about this, I think it's vitally important for defenders to have an understanding of offensive techniques. I agree. I'd also say there isn't any shortage of defensive information out there, but I think it usually takes the form of books. I think it's a long-form discussion when we get into hardcore defensive stuff. I think it takes the form of vendors and their marketing of their products that do defense. Uh, I think there's, you know, plenty of defensive information out there. I see articles on it. I see blog posts on it. I think the debate here is that it just doesn't fill con rooms. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of okay. I, I, I would like to see more of it, but I'm also pretty realistic that if I'm going to a conference and I'm using my own personal time, maybe my own personal money, I want to have a good time and I want to see fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think there's value in that. And I think that anyone who's a defender is probably doing a lot of other things, or at least they should be, to keep up on the defense side. Uh, I do think that we, you know, to pick on, on the vendors for a minute, we rely too much on what the vendors teach us or try to teach us because they're trying to further their agenda to sell whatever blinky box they have. But I don't, I don't know that I can really be mad at cons for not doing more defensive stuff or that anyone should force them to reserve certain percentage of talks to be about defense. I just, I can't, I can't buy off. Here's, here's a thought. Here's a thought. If, if you want to, you know, if you want to have cons have more defensive talks, how about we come up with more defensive talks that are more popular and better attended for cons? I can't disagree with that. It's a very free market solution. <laughs> well, yep. There we go. I knew that would appeal to your libertarian sensibilities. The key is a good solid talk, right? And that's not easy. It's easy to show a cool demo. I'll be honest, and this is probably going to piss some people off. I see people who can do a good attack demo have terrible speaking skills and terrible presentation skills and terrible soft skills. But people find the presentation fascinating, so they so they deal with it. In general, when somebody's presenting defensive information, they have to be a better better presenter and better able to connect with their audience. And Absolutely. I know that's a con- controversial statement, but I'm going to throw it out there. No, I think you're right on. I mean, uh, absolutely. I think I think when we 
you know, when we go to DerbyCon, we need to, we need to, to kind of pay attention to that. Cause I think you're right. I think you're right on. And I, I think it just goes to what the demand is. And, you know, I, I'll be honest though, I've never, I, well, it's not true. I have, I have done very limited speaking at cons. So I'm not an expert at this. Uh, but this is just my random observations. And, um, I don't know. Some, some people, some people, uh, on the Twitter sphere, and there's, you know, some I could name, but I won't right now, uh, take exception when people all they do is con surf and just go give their prezos at cons and think they're doing something. I, I'm not going to go that far as to say that that's a bad thing to, to give, you know, kind of prezos at cons. And, but some have this elitist attitude that, if you're actually out there doing the God's work of defending an enterprise, that's more noble than, than giving talks at cons. I don't know about that, but there's, there's, there's definitely a social hierarchy pecking order amongst our little echo chamber around this whole topic that I think sometimes gets distracting. Yeah. I'll I'll tell you, I, I know, I know exactly the, I think I know exactly the, the discussions that you were, you were referring to and, and the people involved. Um, you know, and I think it's the, it's the whole thought leader versus, you know, it, uh, doers d- debate, you know, and, and here's the problem. The doers, you know, and, and, and I, I guess I call myself as a doer, right? The doers, I mean, whether it's, it's a personality thing or whether it's a workload thing, I don't, I, I don't really know. The doers, I don't think very often poke their head up and, and go and, and make those talks. And maybe that's because they're not good speakers generally or, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to stereotype, right? I'm, I know that there are good, you know, actual practicing defenders who are great at speaking and, you know, and, and all that. And I know that there are, uh, you know, the, the, the converse is also true, but I think that there is a, you know, there's a correlation around those people who are in that that kind of fluffy thought leader role who have the opportunity to build the you know and refine their um, you know their 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 speeches for these conferences. And I would also say that there's, it's probably not an accident that they're in those roles to begin with because they're probably you know well speaking and you know very good at speaking and 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 so they're uh, you know they're they're in those prominent roles in companies to begin with so well you know i have one other thought on that i agree i agree with mostly what you're saying there as well but i also think there's a bias on the defensive side and i've had this conversation offline with some folks that i don't know the defenders feel that they have anything original to add to the conversation that's a great point Anything novel or unique. I don't know how many defenders feel like, wow, I set up that firewall really well and I segmented my network really well is worthy of adding to the conversation. That's a great point. Whereas, hey, I found a new way to pop Linux. Right. So I think that the folks who are busy defending all day don't look at what they do as interesting enough to share in a presentation form. Um, whereas, you know, what I would say is, I don't know about that because the guys who are doing this stuff all day, they can be funnels to the industry. And some of the best industry pundits I know of whether, whatever industry you're in, aren't necessarily coming up with unique novel stuff. 
but they're really good at analysis and funneling all the information down and, and deriving down to what really matters and is useful and knowledge, and knowledge that needs to be disseminated. Not necessarily because it's original, but because they can figure out the wheat from the chaff. And I don't know. I think there's something we said of, of, of more folks presenting this is how I do what I do through my experience over the last X years. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's probably also another another headwind, which is a lot of companies don't want you talking about. Oh yeah, that's a good this, point. The stuff that you're you're doing during yeah. your day job. And I mean, I know I've had that discussion with my. Oh, it's one thing that drives me crazy about sales guys who name drop all the time. Oh, so and so uses this gear. Does that company want you talking about that? <laughs> Right. And that is something that, that, you know, to get on a quick sales guy rant, I, I, I cringe every time they talk about anything anybody's using because I, when I was in operations production, I never wanted anybody knowing what I was using ever. Right. So that definitely can in, infringe upon or limit your ability to give talks. Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I, to be, to be very blunt, that's one of the reasons I haven't. And I am, I try to be extraordinarily careful about segregating my work life from this podcast. Yeah. So, and it's, you know, it is the way it is. It is what it is, right? I agree. Can't get away from it. So anyhow, we are like way over time. So yes, um, (laughs) I had, I had intended to do some, uh, some listener mail, but we're going to do that next week. So we got some good questions, got some hopefully good answers. It's a teaser. Listen next time. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the meantime, if you like our podcast, give us a, you know, give us a good rating on, on iTunes, please. That, that helps bump us up in, uh, in the ratings and maybe we can get to 30 listeners. That would be so cool. Uh, you can, uh, you can also send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org with any, uh, questions, comments, uh, whatever, you know, we love getting email and, and, uh, usually we, you know, we usually are, are polite when we respond, usually. Uh, you can follow uh, the show on Twitter at Defensive Sec. You can find the show notes and back episodes and all that fun stuff uh, on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. And you can follow Mr. Kellen on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And uh, with that, we will uh, we'll talk to you next time. And by the way, DerbyCon is uh, not long away. So hopefully, if you're going, you will come look us up. And with that, we'll talk again next time. Take care. Bye. See you guys.